Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. President James K. Polk took over the White House with a vision, and in 1846 he set his dreams into reality. Like many Americans at the time, Polk believed in America's manifest destiny to take over all of North America. Standing in his way was the newly formed Republic of Mexico, and Polk took extreme measures to manufacture a war that forever changed the continent. This conflict would add the entire Southwest to the American nation and spur the first true anti-war movement in U.S. history. Although few understand its importance today, the long legacy of this war has soured U.S.-Mexican relations ever since and remains critical to understanding the growth of the United States. On this episode, we discuss the Mexican-American War. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On Season 5 of the series, we're discussing battlegrounds, studying the who, what, where, when, and why of some of the most famous conflicts in history. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow me on Twitter at Brady Kreitzer, on my author's website, bradykreitzer.com, you can go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Brady J. Kreitzer. And of course, you're home for everything wartime on the web, wartimepodcast.com. On today's episode, we're going to discuss a little bit of history, of course, and a little bit of politics, not much, and a little bit of how the two intersect, where they come together, and how they affect one another. You know, one thing that is undeniable about history is that once the bug catches you, once you're in. Once you go down the rabbit hole, you're gone forever. And it may be one subject or another, depending on the person. But one thing I have seen for certain, and this is true for the last, I think, 30 years at least, is that one field of historical study rules them all. Not just in popular culture, we'll talk about that, but also in academia. You know, I think I saw a statistic that said something like 90% of historians or would-be historians who enter graduate programs study American history. And of them, about 90% study the American Civil War. Just the American Civil War. Now, the American Civil War is important. We're going to talk about it in this season. But that is an insane number of people. And what that means is for the whole rest of the world... Never mind the rest of American history. There are very few people professionally working to study those fields. And you see that transcend into the popular historical market. If you look at, you know, Amazon.com new releases, and no, I'm not being paid to say that. Uh, they're sort of like the Walmart of history books at this point. You'll see that almost every week. No, I'll, I'll change that. In fact, every week. There are at least one or two books released on the American Civil War. Some are academic studies. Some are more popular narratives. Some are just another Abraham Lincoln biography. Like, we don't have enough of those. 
But the facts are undeniable. The volume of study that comes out in that field is going to change the way we view not only that subject, but all subjects. Because when you have something that big, a planet, so to speak, with its own gravitational pull, it drags everything else into it. So suddenly, the 20 years leading up to the American Civil War becomes simply prologue for that event. And the 20 years after it, and by the way, the, the last quarter of the 19th century is an incredibly uh, fascinating and, and enriching time period to study. That's just the epilogue to the Civil War. Reconstruction, we'll call it. And that's that. Now, that's Reconstruction is a big part of it. But that's what I'm saying is it draws you in and changes the way you not only see that event, but the events all around it. And the subject of today's conversation, although we'll have people in it like Robert E. Lee and Ulysses S. Grant, uh, really has uh, nothing to do with the American Civil War in the minds of the people who fight it and in the minds of the people who follow it. Yet here in the 21st century, we treat an entire war. Only mind you, the second time the United States of America ever declares war on a foreign enemy as nothing more than prologue. Of course, you know by the subject line, we're talking today about the Mexican-American War, the Battle of Chapultepec Castle, the capture of Mexico City, the one that ends it. And this is a war unto itself. People die in this war. People make reputations and stake reputations in this war. For many people, this is their war. For America, it's the very first foreign war where we send troops to another land to fight. And all of that will affect the outcome and shape of this country a very great deal. And you may view the Mexican-American War as nothing more than the prelude to the Civil War, which, in my opinion, has been done by everyone except the few people who study the Mexican-American War. But by the end of this episode today, if there's anything you take from it, I want you to view it as something more, something bigger, and something worthy of our study on its own. By the end of today's episode, I'm going to convince you, or at least I'm going to try, that you should consider this as a war by its own merit, and I'm also going to try and convince you that in 30 or 40 years... This will not be some secondary war. This will not be some strange thing that happened. The Mexican-American War will not be a war that most Americans have never heard of, because that's true. This will be an incredible and defining moment for our country. Not because the events change, but because the people here change, and our politics change, and our attitudes change. So I'm really pumped about today's episode. For that reason. And it's not necessarily about one specific battle. I mean, you'll see in this season we do talk about individual battles, or we'll talk about entire wars, but I think we know so little about this war. Collectively, it's worthy of its own 45 minutes. And that's not much. So let's get right in. The Prussian military philosopher Karl von Clausewitz said very famously that war is merely politics by another means. So, as you can imagine, politics are going to play a huge role in the way we think about this war and the events that lead to it, like all wars. Now, this war begins in 1846, but we're not going to start there. We're not even going to start in 1844, the election of the president who brings it about. We're going to go all the way back to the year 1821. In 1821, 
a North American colony breaks free from its colonial master and stakes its own claim at freedom. That sounds really familiar for Americans. We did it. But I'm not talking about America. I'm talking about that other North American nation, Mexico. Mexico was the crown jewel for the Spanish in a lot of ways. But by the time you get to 1821, Spain is not what it used to be. In fact, it's not even close. The Spanish Empire is decrepit. It's falling apart. The Mexican people fight for their independence, and they win. By the way, the United States of America are very, very happy about that. The president, a man named James Monroe, created something he called the Monroe Doctrine. That was basically that the Western Hemisphere belongs to us and us alone. And any European powers who want to become involved will be seen as an, uh, an enemy of this nation. Any involvement in the Western Hemisphere will be seen as an act of war. So Mexico is independent and free. Great, good for you. But they're going to learn the hard way, just as, by the way, the United States had to learn, and every country that freed itself from a colonial master, that once you win the war, that's kind of the easy part. Because now you have to run a country and keep a country. And Mexico falls into the same problems that, quite frankly, so did the United States in its early years and others before it. They have to make an army. They have to establish a, a government. They have to determine what kind of government they want to be. They'll experiment with monarchy. doesn't work well. They'll officially become a republic, much to the urging of the United States, in 1824, a democracy. They give their people the right to vote. But again, this becomes the hard part. Not only do you have to build a framework of government for the Mexicans, but you have to actually keep and establish borders. We're going to talk about why that's very difficult. Because their neighbors to the north, the United States, who they've borrowed a lot of money from, have very, very pronounced and clear ambitions on a lot of land that belongs to Mexico. You see, Mexico in the 1820s is not Mexico today. The Rio Grande is not the beginning or end of anything. Mexico in the 1820s is all of modern Mexico, but also today's state of Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, Colorado, Utah, Nevada, and California. All of that, all of that is Mexico. This summer, uh, I took a trip to the American Southwest. It's what inspired me to do this episode. And I stayed in fabulous Las Vegas. Now, for reasons I won't say, I've been to Las Vegas about a dozen times in my life starting at the age of about 13. But I was able to go to Las Vegas this time with my wife. She's never been there. And I made the decision that I was going to see a different Las Vegas, not the usual strip Las Vegas, and not the other places either, which I have frequented. But I'm talking about the desert. Now, if you don't know anything about the Mojave Desert, we left Las Vegas City at about 5 a.m., and it was like 110 degrees, you know, we were there in a heat wave, 115, but at 5 a.m. we were able to get out into the mountains and ride some horses, and it was only 95 degrees, so, you know, we, we made it. Um, but in that desert, the emptiness of it, the space of it, I had this revelation, and that revelation was, until only about, oh, say, 150 years ago, right now I'd be in Mexico, and it felt a lot like Mexico. That land was Mexico. But again, their problems that they faced were big ones, and they were major ones, because they had to keep that land. Their neighbors to the north wanted it pretty desperately. Whenever you study American history, jump away from Mexico a bit. 
if you take a U.S. history survey class, you know, colonial history to the Civil War, one of the ways I like to teach it is sort of this idea that all these colonies and then states are founded for different reasons and different ways. They all have different characters. And these differences will ultimately lead to civil war, major differences between North and South. And if you want to view American history that way, which I recommend, the Civil War won't sneak up on you. It's not inevitable. And this war we're going to talk about today, the Mexican-American War, fits very nicely into it. But if you focus on what Americans actually agree on, that is, not the differences, but the similarities, they all agree on one thing. It's not a document. It's nothing they sign. It's nothing you can see. It's a feeling. It's a national feeling. And we call that feeling manifest destiny. I always think of Owen Wilson's character in Night at the Museum when I say that, but manifest destiny was a real thing. And it was a belief that God had put the American nation on this planet to spread. First, all the way to the Pacific Ocean. Remember, the United States at this point really stopped at the Mississippi River. And then beyond, because the American way of life, democracy, brotherhood, republicanism was uh, the fruition of of humanity's time on earth, the end of history. North and South both believed in that. What they didn't agree on, however, was what that America should look like. Should it be a America that values industry and freedom and entrepreneurship and enterprise? The North believed that. Or an America that valued a slave-based capitalist system? South valued that. Again, they all wanted to go somewhere, but the question was, what were they going to take with them? Well, that somewhere was Mexico. And Mexico's capital, Mexico City, still, by the way, in terms of size, the largest city in the world, was very, very far from those northern territories. Mexico City is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles away from California, Nevada, and Utah, Colorado. So you're going to see an intersection here. And believe it or not, this story goes, and this debate goes, from the 1824 foundation of Mexico all the way to 1836 an event we call the Texas Revolution. Now, this is not a podcast just on the Texas Revolution, which it very easily could. I mean, it's a massive event. I'll try and make it simple, but it's important. One of the big problems Mexico had early on in its in its earliest years as a nation was that its border provinces, its distant provinces, were very difficult to control. And there were a lot of people, specifically Native American peoples, in those areas that did not want them there. Mexico has an army. Mexico has a president. Mexico has citizens living all over. But the citizens who lived in the northeastern corner of the country, an area the Mexicans will call Texas, had it very difficult. Because when the Indians would raid, the people who lived there, the settlers, they really couldn't do much to protect themselves. The army was too far to respond. Indian raids happened too frequently. So they needed to develop a system to outnumber the native peoples, effectively build strength in numbers. So the Mexicans begin what they call the empresario system, which basically says, if you live in the United States, maybe you live in Alabama or Mississippi or Louisiana or Tennessee, one of these sort of southwestern border states, you can move into Mexico. You have to take an oath of loyalty, but the land will be incredibly cheap, if not free, and the opportunities will be endless. And hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Americans then immigrated into Mexico, hoping in the minds of the Mexican government, solving one of their big problems. 
again, populating Texas. Now, the people who lived here, uh, they were not necessarily against renouncing their American citizenship or being a dual Mexican or American citizen. Citizenship and renouncing it today is sacrilegious to us, whatever country you're in. But it really isn't there yet, not for the Americans at least. So many people move there. Well, the problem is, again, where these people come from. They come from mostly the American South. They bring with them a lot of things the Mexican people really reject, one of them being slavery. But the other is this idea, this what I call this independent streak. Now, you don't want to play this up too much because it's easily done, but these Americans who move here, these empresarios, bring with them this desire for self-government. A desire, by the way, the Mexicans do not appreciate. Uh, that is, as far as the Texans are concerned. So with the free or cheap land, the opportunity, more and more Americans begin moving into Texas. Mexican territory. And many of them are not going through the legal channels to do so. They're not paying taxes. They're not uh, following the rules. They're not doing the step-by-step process to become a Mexican citizen. And they become unruly, and they become rebellious. And the Mexican state of Texas then goes into rebellion. But they're not Mexican people fighting the Mexican government. They're these American transplants. The biggest problem that the president of Mexico has, a man named Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, in 1836, is no longer Indian raids. It's no longer the Spanish Empire. The biggest problem Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana has in 1836 is Americans, get this, Americans illegally immigrating into Mexico. I want you to chew on that for a second. The biggest problem in 1836 for Mexico is is Americans illegally immigrating into Mexico. I really hope Donald Trump is listening now because his head might explode. But this is very important for 2016, because no matter how you feel about immigration, one side or the other, again, it's not political. I'm sure you have valid reasons for feeling the way you do. I don't care about that. Um, You have to understand that this didn't happen in some bizarre world. This really happened. The people of Mexico rebel. You have this great stand at the Alamo. You have all these battles. Sam Houston is their leader. In the end of the game, what we're worried about is that Texas wins its freedom from Mexico and establishes itself as its own country, the Republic of Texas. That's a powerful story. That's an important story. Because now it makes North America a very crowded place. You not only have the nation of Mexico and the United States, but you also have British colonies in Canada. And a brand new country, very small, but important, the Republic of Texas. Now, most of the people who live in Texas are Americans anyway. And with some exceptions, most of them agree, or if they had their preference, they would say, they really wish that the nation of Texas would become the state of Texas in the United States of America. We call that process annexation. That is, America will annex the nation of Texas, the Republic of Texas, and make it one of their states. And in the 1830s, most Americans agree. Southerners especially like this idea, because that means that Texas will be a state, and not just any state, but a slave state. 
It'll give them a significant advantage in the Senate and the House of Representatives for passing pro-slavery legislation, so they're on board. Even Northerners, despite the fact that you have this free and slave debate going on, agree that if this country is going to grow, manifest destiny. Texas has to be part of it. It'll fall to the president. And the president at that time is Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson looks at Texas. He looks at annexation. Andrew Jackson is what we call a strict constructionist, sometimes. That means he reads the Constitution literally, does not interpret it, sometimes. And does not do anything that's not explicitly written in it. And he says, much to the dismay of many people in the country, we cannot annex a country as a state. The Constitution doesn't allow it. It's illegal. And I will not allow it. I will not sign any bill that promotes that. Well, Andrew Jackson is not president anymore. This goes to 1840 in the presidential election. It's a big deal. Annexation still loses. But now we get to 1844, the real crux of today's episode. And annexation of Texas has become not just an issue of the 1844 presidential election, but the issue of the 1844 presidential election. Every presidential election in American history, if you are American, you should know this. If you're not, maybe it's the first time you've heard it. Every election is typically decided by one issue. It's still being ironed out what 2016's issue will be. If you're listening to this way in the future, this might sound might sound funny, but um, some people think it's going to be immigration. Some people think it's going to be action in the Middle East. Some people think it's going to be guns. I don't know. It could be any of these things. I mean, these are big issues Americans have to deal with. And usually each election has that one big issue. In 2012, Barack Obama versus Mitt Romney, it was health care. In 2004, John Kerry versus George W. Bush, it was the Iraq War. Every election has that one thing that people, and you know how this goes, will ruin their Thanksgiving dinner over. You know, everybody has that uncle. It might be you that ruins a perfectly good time by talking about politics. By the way, in my family, it's me. <laughs> but it's always there. And in 1844, it's Texas. What do we do with it? Annexation. That's the key. There's some major frontrunners in this election. Men like John C. Calhoun. Men like Henry Clay, the great compromiser. But ultimately, annexation is the deciding issue. And one man is willing to take a stand on annexation. And while there's a lot of waffling on the other sides, this one man named James Knox Polk will never waffle. And he'll be pro-annexation all the way. And he'll ride that, I guess you can say, consistency. He's a Democrat. He's viewed as a good Jacksonian man, Andrew Jackson, even though he's gone, still looms large. And he's elected president. Now, when he takes over, he makes a lot of promises. One of them is Texas. 1845, one of the first acts of business that the James K. Polk administration will do is annex Texas. But he does a lot of other things, too. And most of you probably aren't very familiar with James Knox Polk. I think he should be, and will be, considered one of the most important presidents we've ever had. I'm not saying he's a good guy. And as we'll see, I'm not saying what he does is going to win him the uh, Humanitarian of the Year Award. Forget the Nobel Peace Prize. 
But he does have a vision for the country, and it's a vision that both North and South agree on. This idea of manifest destiny. Texas is now an American state. That's a promise he made. He was elected for that reason. He lives up to that promise. But he also wants to do other things for shoring up what our country looks like. He looks to the northern border. Here's an example. There is no border with Canada in the emerging West. The Canadian border has always been the St. Lawrence River and the Great Lakes because the United States has never really extended beyond that. He establishes that Canadian border. We still have it to this day. But he also does other things. And again, it's part opportunism, a big part of politics, but it has everything to do with changing and altering the shape of our country. He looks at other opportunities, and I'm making this very simple, but it's important enough to expand. And he sees that if America wants to move beyond Texas, further west, into what is today Arizona and New Mexico and California, Nevada, Utah, Colorado, you have got to deal with Mexico. I'll put a map of this on the Facebook page, on the on Twitter, facebook.com slash Brady J. Kreitzer, at Brady Kreitzer on, on Twitter. But there's a big chunk of land that belongs to Mexico that's right in the way of James K. Polk's plan. His plan is take it at all cost. Now, you can't just take another country's land. You can, let me correct that, but you'll never be the good guy. You resign yourself to be the bad guy in history, and James K. Polk is aware of that. But he also believes it won't hurt him too much at home. So he needs a reason, he needs a reason, to start a war with Mexico. He believes the war will be quick and easy, it'll be dirty, but it'll be effective. Because all of that land, really maybe all of Mexico, would belong to the United States. What I'm talking about is the manufacturing, artificially, of a war that doesn't need to happen. I'm talking about bullying on the grandest scale. I'm talking about opportunism at the expense of American lives, and certainly Mexican lives. But again, would a president be so bold as to do that? Yes. Yes, he would. That's what James K. Polk wants to do. Ulysses S. Grant is a young officer who will serve in this war with Mexico, the war that's coming. And he will say very famously, I believe, and this is a paraphrase, but it's pretty close. I believe that, I do not believe that there is ever a more wicked war waged on this earth than the one by the United States on Mexico. He says, I believed it then, looking back as an older man, but I did not have the moral courage to resign. That's coming from Ulysses S. Grant. That's coming from a man who will be called the Butcher because of how many of his own men he sends to their death in the Civil War. And he says that's the most wicked war in history. That should mean something. But let's get back to the war itself. How are you going to manufacture a war? How are you going to cook up a war? Well, Polk has a plan. You see, the Mexican people believe that the existing border between the United States and Mexico is called the Nueces River. It's north of what the Americans believe the border should be, the Rio Grande. Now, Texas is kind of a problem here. Because really, if you ask Mexico City, the capital, 
where the border with the United States should be, they would say that Texas is not a free country. It never was. And therefore, it's not a part of the United States now. They believe Texas was never recognized as an independent state, and it still should be theirs. Remember, the Mexican government owes our government a lot of money as a result of their revolution. And they say very plainly, we're not going to pay you back. You took Texas. That's worth way more than any money we owe you. So just take that as our payment. This is the dispute that begins it all. Well, James K. Polk will send a man named Zachary Taylor. His men call him Old Rough and Ready. And if you study American history, you're getting into the age of great nicknames. But he sends Old Rough and Ready down into Mexico. He says, go to the Rio Grande, establish it as the border. And Zachary Taylor does just that. He takes the American army, he crosses the Nueces River, which everybody in the area believed to be the border. He marches all the way to the Rio Grande, and there's several battles and engagements as a result. All of the people beyond the Nueces River were Mexicans. Everyone agreed that was Mexican land. But Zachary Taylor, old rough and ready, takes his men there and fights all the way south to a place called Matamoros. Big battle there. American soldiers will die. James K. Polk has his argument. Polk's argument goes something like this. We were going to shore up our border with Mexico, the Rio Grande. Again, only recognized by one side. And American blood was shed. The Mexicans attacked us. American blood was shed, he says, on American soil. Keep in mind, he's the only person that believed that the strip of land between the Nueces River in the north and the Rio Grande in the south was American soil. All the people who lived there were Mexicans. They all agreed it was Mexican soil. But that will be his casus belli, his cause of war. American blood is shed on American soil. We cannot stand up for this. And Congress will vote. And they will, for only the second time in American history, declare war on a foreign enemy. And for the first time, they'll send the U.S. Army into foreign lands. We're talking about a full-scale invasion of Mexico. Right away, in the north, there is a palpable anger that emerges. And the anger is that this is a manufactured war that doesn't need to happen, and many are saying it's done for one reason and one reason only. They say at best, it's just greed, but at worst, this is what they call a slave conspiracy. You see, if you look at uh, Mexico, if you conquered all of it, which most Americans believe that they would, all of that land could be organized in the states, and all of that land could be organized not just into any states, but slave-holding states. You could easily make 10 to 15 American-sized states out of Mexico. Each one of those states would get two members of the Senate, an endless number of members of the House of Representatives, and in that vein... Uh, the southern vision of America would rule the country. So, almost immediately you have what we can think of as the very first anti-war movement in American history. Men like Henry David Thoreau begin to write essays and deliver speeches. His is called Civil Disobedience. About why we shouldn't support our government when it acts inappropriately on our behalf. He says, American people don't agree with this. 
The Mexicans think we are evil, think we're the enemies. Only the government and a select few Americans in the South really want this. Abraham Lincoln, who's a congressman at the time, low-level congressman out of Illinois, gets in a very public spat over this. He says this war is, is terrible. He says the evidence is shoddy. I mean, I mean, obviously I'm making this simple. And it will cost him everything. He'll lose his re-election because of it. But he never wavers. Politically, it hurt him, and he never wavers for the rest of his life. But this war with Mexico is now on. Second war in American history, first foreign invasion of enemy soil, first anti-war movement. I mean, this is a very dynamic and impressive war. And to say it's just that thing that happened before the Civil War does it a great injustice, in my opinion. So we'll talk about it on its own. Now, the man who's put in charge of this, Zachary Taylor and James K. Polk, have a very big and public and nasty fallout. James K. Polk will be removed from power. And the man that will replace him is a man named Winfield Scott. Old fuss and feathers. Nicknames don't get much better than that. Old fuss and feathers. But old fuss and feathers is a good thinker. He knows what he's doing. He understands this war shouldn't be competitive. He understands this war should be over quickly. And as an army general, as an officer, it's not his place to debate the motivations of the war. He's not political, even though he'll run for president at one point. It's just his job to win it, to protect his men and end the war as quickly as possible. The strategy that he develops is a good one. It works pretty well. And because of this, this war will not really be competitive. I mean, it begins in 1846, and the treaty is officially ratified that ends in 1848. But the fighting is never really contentious. And I mean that as Americans never really have uh, a feeling they're going to lose this war. Winfield Scott's strategy basically looks like this. Number one, strip out all Mexican residents from their northernmost territories, California, Nevada, Colorado, Utah, and New Mexico. Number two, take full military occupation of those areas. That, by the way, all today is the United States. Number three, take Mexico City. And that's going to be the hard part. And that's also what we're going to talk about probably the most today. The capture of Mexico City is a long process. But again, it's never in doubt. Winfield Scott looks at how you'll move soldiers out of Texas to Mexico City. And he sees several hundred miles of difficult and deadly marching through the desert. He doesn't want to do that. That's not good for anyone. Those are the kind of maneuvers that give generals very bad reputations. That's like Napoleon marching all the way to Russia, unprepared and unsupplied. He doesn't want to be the next Napoleon. So Winfield Scott develops what we call an amphibious invasion of Mexico. He loads his men onto ships in Louisiana, takes them through the Gulf of Mexico, and lands on the Mexican port of Veracruz. Now, Veracruz is fortified. The Spanish were excellent, excellent at fortifying coastal locations and building forts. Travel through Florida, Mexico, travel through the Caribbean, look at the Spanish forts. They're breathtaking, and I'm a guy who can appreciate a good fort. But Veracruz was heavily defended, walled, 
uh, cannons, all those things. There was a small skirmish there, but it was really, as far as the Americans are concerned, an unopposed event, this march on Mexico City. They landed Veracruz. From there, if you look at a map, and I'll again post this online, facebook.com slash Brady J. Kreitzer, at Brady Kreitzer. If you're not following now, you should be, because you also get humor, I think. The history's free. Humor lasts forever. Um, at any rate, um, they march there from Veracruz to Mexico City. And again, from there, it's just a matter of taking it, so they think. Winfield Scott does something that generals always do. If you're in the military, you know what I mean. If you are a general, you might want to might want to close your ears for this one. But they like to lead from the back. Not always, of course. But they're always a cozy distance from the action. And one of the things that Winfield Scott does is he doesn't actually march on Mexico City himself. He sends a young officer who's been working with him in his stead. Winfield Scott says he has no doubt this young officer will capture Mexico City. He says his future is bright. He says one day this country, he believes, will be saved by this young man. He says he would insure this young officer's life for a million dollars. That's how much he believes in this unnamed young officer to capture Mexico City. Who was that young unnamed officer? Robert E. Lee of Virginia. You can't make that up. We've already mentioned Ulysses S. Grant. We've already mentioned Robert E. Lee. The biggest names of the American Civil War will participate in this war. In fact, because it's about 15 years before it, they'll cut their teeth here. They are young men fighting here. So if you're trying to make the Civil War into a story, this does make a convenient prologue, but let's not treat it that way. Let's treat it like its own war. Because that's how it will be viewed in the future, I really believe it. But the U.S. Army marches on Mexico City, the battle in which culminates this great invasion is what we call the Battle of Chapultepec Castle. If you go to Mexico City today, in the center of the city, you have this massive park with this wonderful sort of uh, ancient-looking building called Chapultepec Castle. Think of it like Mexico's West Point. And whenever the Americans got there, really the only people in Chapultepec Castle were young cadets. Not full-trained soldiers, but cadets. And they picked up muskets and they fought. And they fought the Americans... Not because they hated them and not because they um, uh, had some great ideological difference with them. They fought the Americans because the Americans were invading Mexico. And they were ready to die for their country. Six cadets will make a brave stand, the Mexicans that is, at Chapultepec Castle. They'll give their lives, they'll be killed. One of these cadets will even take the Mexican flag. And by the way, these six cadets are between the ages of 13 and 19. He'll wrap himself in the flag and he'll jump to his death just so no Americans will capture it. If you go to Chapultepec Park today, there's a massive monument to these six soldiers. Um, It's kind of like the Alamo for the Texans. It's sacred ground. These young men gave their lives for their country. Remember, wars are like that. There's always two sides. It's important you understand that. And there's not always a clear line between good and bad, although I think there is in this one. The majority of the American officers in the battle will be killed. The vast majority. And to this day, for that reason, if you look at uh, non-commissioned and commissioned officers in the U.S. Marines, they have a red stripe down their pant leg called the blood stripe. And they wear that in honor of the dead at Chapultepec Castle. 
So both sides, American and Mexican, have their heroes and their legends and their lore as a result of this. But Mexico City will fall. And a treaty will be signed that ends the war. Of course, Winfield Scott rolls into the city after the fighting's over. But the treaty that ends this war, I think, is going to be viewed as one of the most important treaties in all of American history. Again, today we barely talk about it. It's called the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. And the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo basically says this. Number one. Again, the Americans won the war. They could ask whatever they want. Number one, the Rio Grande is the new border between the United States and Mexico. Everything south of it's very hot, very dry land. Coastal cities, not so much, of course, but many Americans believe that land would be too difficult to keep. And probably one that they'll lose again. I mean, the almost guaranteed wars of rebellion. But the other thing they said was that all of Mexico's northern territories, California, Nevada, Colorado, New Mexico, and Arizona, would officially become American territory. Number three, to show there's no hard feelings, the Americans gave Mexico because, hey, we're neighbors after all. Mi casa es su casa, right? Uh, $15 million, which is nothing. I think our presidential candidates spend $15 million in a week for their campaigns today. And that's that. That's the Mexican-American War. Now, if you look at a map of Mexico and a map of modern America, I mean, literally, like, 25% of our country, in terms of size, if you're an American, was taken at the point of a gun from Mexico in that war. It was taken on false pretenses. A whole entire war was began just for the purpose of removing that from Mexico and taking it for us. California will be an American state as a result. Colorado, Nevada, Utah, Arizona, Texas is really shoring up in that war, and New Mexico. That's an incredible thing. I mean, when you look at the map before and after of both America and Mexico, it's almost unbelievable. Again, Ulysses S. Grant, I do not believe a more wicked war was ever fought on this earth than the war between the United States and Mexico. So why do I think it's so important? Well, a lot of people really love the Civil War today. Right? A lot of people. But the thing is, the Civil War is kind of falling out of fashion. It's had about 40 years on top in terms of popular American narratives. But people are already starting to look elsewhere. They're starting to explore World War II more. Rightfully so. They're kind of going back to the Revolution. That's where I do all of my work. Colonial America. Rightfully so. And the Civil War is sort of, I think, slowing down. But here's where politics comes in. Here's where politics comes in. People look at projections for America, and they see by the year 2040, white Americans will be in the minority. And by the year 2050, Latin and Hispanic Americans will be very close to becoming the majority. Those people will go into history, they'll study it, just the way that we've studied now and have studied it for hundreds of years. And because many of them will be of Mexican descent, they're going to look at this war and say, you know what, this is a pretty important war. Not just because, as historians, they're Mexican-American, that's their heritage, but because like 25% of our entire country comes from that war. A huge part of the shape of our country, the way we view our country. And given the circumstances it was taken, I think that war is going to be viewed as much more important. It's certainly not going to be one of these throwaway wars, or a prelude to the Civil War. It will be on its own, it will stand on its own. 
And they're not wrong for saying that. I mean, I think the Mexican-American War, in terms of the outline of our country, the shape of our country, the size and demographics of our country, is one of the most important wars in the history of the United States. And to write it off as being small or unimportant or just a smaller part of something bigger, like the beginning of the Civil War, it doesn't do it justice. Mark my words, if podcasting still exists uh, in, uh, in, in 30 years, you're going to say, I remember when Brady said the Mexican-American War would be an important war. Remember, the events don't change. They don't change. But our perception of the past change. History is not about finding something new. It's about looking at something old in a new way. And I think the Mexican-American War is going to have its day. And it's decade, in fact. And it's going to be one of those important wars. Now, this also ties into the immigration debate today. Because a lot of people in places like Colorado, Utah, Nevada, New Mexico, Arizona, and California have very strong opinions about immigration. And uh, you can imagine why. Uh, Latin and Hispanic immigration is very, very big in those areas. Many of the people in those communities are Latin and Hispanic Americans. But people don't realize, and this is the realization I had in the middle of the Mojave Desert in Nevada, that when you're looking around in those places, those states, cities like Los Angeles, San Francisco, Las Vegas, San Diego, right? they have Spanish names because they were originally Spanish cities. I mean, you were in lands that once belonged to Mexico. And they were part of Mexico way longer. Mexico and Spain, way longer than they've been part of America just yet. That too will pass, but just look at the time. And I think that needs to be mentioned. I'm not saying that should be how you form your opinion on the issue. But to sit there in 2015 and now 2016 and just say it doesn't matter, I think is doing yourself a great disservice. I think you can't live in a bubble, especially historically and especially not on this podcast. Thank you for joining us. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime.